Hello, lovely ladies. Happy summer. Yes, summer is finally here. I love this time of year. Me too. I already have two vacations planned and multiple books on my summer reading list. Are you speaking of your paranormal love vampire books? <laughs> well, yes, among others, but I will have you know that these are not only about vampires and shapeshifters, they are a commentary on our society. Okay, all right, ladies. Well, I know I'm looking forward to our annual literacy conference in July. That's right. You know, summer is also a time when educators find some time to really grow professionally. Yes, and many of you, our listeners, are just starting summer vacation, but you will not want to miss the first of our two-part interview with Kelly Gallagher, a teacher for over 30 years. Kelly is the author of six books for teachers, including Read Aside and Write Like This. He's also a speaker, consultant, literacy coach, and a current teacher at Magnolia High School, right in our backyard of Anaheim, California. So our colleague, Kate, sat down to chat with Kelly Gallagher at last year's CNUSD Literacy is Everywhere conference. And there he offered inspiration as well as practical strategies at his morning keynote. Here is the first part of their chat. And just a warning, you will likely get a lot of inspiration from Kelly, so you might wanna grab some paper and a pen to jot down all of your ideas. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for meeting me here today in Eastville, California in July in the summer. We just listened to um, one of, another one of your wonderful presentations and uh, was, you were a big hit with the audience. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I know that you write a blog and your website is kellygallagher.org and our listeners can find your information there. So one thing that I thought was really interesting, you said that if a teacher spends eight weeks teaching any major literary work, it ceases to be a work of art. Instead, the work of art is turned into an eight-week worksheet. This was really intriguing to me. Can you explain what you mean by this? Well, you know, I think there's a delicate balance that literature teachers go through, you know, um, and it's, it's something I still wrestle with today after all these years in the classroom is how much do we give kids and how much, you know, are, am, am I enabling my kids? Am I supporting them enough? Where is that tipping point? Uh, I think there's a danger in both over-teaching books and there's a danger in under-teaching books as well. And so I'm trying to find where that balance is. And sometimes that balance is different between second period and third period. You know, my second period was an inclusion class, which means it had a, a, a fairly large population of special education children in the, in the classroom. And so with them, they need a little bit more support. Um, my concern is that in sort of this testing culture that, that today's teachers have been brought up in, that many teachers have gotten to a point where they try to teach all things in all books. And, you know, if you were to go out to a movie tonight and I had the projectionist stop the film every three minutes and you took notes, I don't think you'd be a movie viewer much longer. And my concern is that kids are not being asked to extend their thinking and to... Uh, you know, that the, the book is getting so chopped up that it's not even recognizable as a book anymore. Uh, and so I've been working very hard in my classroom. You know, I pick one thing and we try to, one or two things, and we try to really focus on those one or two things. And so for the most part, that eight-week reading experience, I, I, I'd like that to be a four-week reading experience. I don't want the work of art to get lost in a sea of post-it notes. Is there a piece of literature that you th is a must for you to teach in your classroom? And can you tell us how you might uh, focus on those one or two things? 
Well, um, that's interesting because there is a debate in the country right now from very smart people who have honest disagreements. Um, there are some people who believe that the teacher should never pick a whole class novel, mm -hmm. that who am I as a teacher who was raised in a different culture than many of the kids that I'm teaching? Who am I to decide what is the proper book for them to read? If you had come into my classroom three or four years ago, you would have seen me teach six major literary works. But I think uh, the kids' reading diet has really gotten out of balance that when you take a reluctant reader and you say, here's a hard book, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one, you're, you're going to kill readers, which, which is why I wrote a book called Read Aside. On the other hand, I do believe that, that there is a value that happens. There's a level of discourse. There's a level of argument. There's a level of thinking and reading and writing and discussion that happens when 30 kids read a book that doesn't happen when four kids read a book, mm -hmm. say like in a book club experience. So I'm trying to find that right balance. Last year I taught two major literary works. Um, my seniors read 1984 and they all read um, Hamlet. Uh, I think I could justify each of those as a whole class reading experience. Um, I don't teach novels just to teach novels. I teach novels uh, with the idea that they will provide imaginative rehearsals for the real world for my kids. And so think about what's happening in the world today. Is there a better time to teach 1984 when we talk about surveillance and we talk about privacy, we talk about Edward Snowden? Uh, I want my kids to talk about that, read about that, write about that, argue about that now before they become adults, before they become voters, uh, so that that book allows a safe place for diverse thought to, to, to be kicked around in the classroom. Um, as we're sitting and recording this today, I'm three weeks away, two weeks away from starting a new school year. And, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is going to get moved to the front because I want a vehicle in which my kids are going to examine Black Lives Matter. My kids are going to examine uh, the tragedies in, in, in Baton Rouge and in Dallas. And we're going to look at all perspectives of this um, we're going to to read and write, and we're going to tie the racism in To Kill a Mockingbird with the racism that is occurring in the world today. Um, if we don't do that, we're just we're just teaching stories, and they might be good stories, but the value in teaching literature uh, it comes from applying uh, the lessons learn learned. I read 1984 40 years ago when I was 17, and um, I can tell you today that reading that book made me smarter about the world. I agree I, with you on that because that was my gateway book, 1984. I read it and really woke up. It was the first time I was aware of that there are governments and that they may not have your best interest in mind. I learned what a euphemism is. I learned what propaganda is. Mm -hmm. I learned... Uh, I learned about surveillance issues. I learned to see the... It's not, I didn't just read a story. I read a story that made me wiser about the world. And I think that wisdom is often cultivated when kids have a choice to read what they want. Mm -hmm. But I also think that wisdom is cultivated when 35 kids sit around the same book and read and discuss and argue and write about what they're reading. You talk a lot about volume. And in... Um in a blog you wrote, and it was also published in California English Journal, Moving Beyond the 4x4 Classroom. And so you talk a little bit more about independent reading versus whole class reading. 
a lot of classes, my own class used to be this way, so I'll start the criticism with myself, not just not just with the teachers out there, but most places I go, English teachers, you know, it's a tough job. They have a ton of students. You know, if you're in a comprehensive high school today, it's not unusual for an English teacher to have 170, 180 students. Uh, by the time you take 180 students through a major literary work like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and then get them to all to write a write and revise and edit and share essays, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of times it takes an entire quarter to work your kids through a book and work your kids through a major, major essay. And if, if that's the paradigm we follow, you know, we, write, we read one big book every quarter, we write one big paper every quarter, we will end up with what I call a four-by-four four classroom. And I think for a lot of the kids who are not proficient readers and writers, and even for my college-bound students, that being sort of uh, put in a four-by-four four classroom is not in their best interests. Uh, they need a lot more volume. I didn't really get into it today when I talked with your teachers, but I just want to say we need to stop grading everything. That grading doesn't make kids better readers and writers. Doing makes kids better readers and writers. Um, and that when I talk to my parents of my students, I actually say to them, if you want to ensure that your student does not grow as a writer in my class, then you must insist I grade everything. Because if I stop and grade everything, the volume is going to suffer. And there was a famous writing researcher who once said, you know, you have to play a lot of bad piano before you can play good piano. But if you're learning how to play the piano and I stand over and grade every single move you make, you're not going to develop as a piano player. There's a teacher, Nancy Atwell, who was named the first global teacher uh, award winner. She's a teacher in, in Maine. She was actually named the best teacher in the world, literally, in an international competition. And Atwell, if you look at the growth that her kids make as readers and writers, you will be astounded. But you will be equally astounded to know that she admits in her latest book that she has not graded a single essay in 40 years. How does she be get away with that? Because, <laughs> well, she gets away with it because she runs her own school. Okay. <laughs> but she knows that if you take a kid who's not a very good writer, there are four things that makes kids better writers. Volume, choice, modeling, and one-on-one -on -one conferring time with the teacher. If I sat with you with your paper for two minutes, I could help you move that paper way more than if I took that paper home and wrote stuff all over it on the weekend, which most kids are going to ignore mm -hmm. anyways. Uh, and I know that's a radical concept for some teachers and some parents to consider, but I used to coach high school basketball. We were graded Friday night. But we got in the gym Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and, and in the summer and in the winter. We didn't get better because we got graded. We got better because we got in the gym and we worked and worked and worked and worked, right? And so I think teachers should be doing a lot more, a lot less grading, a lot more assessing, but a lot less grading of student work. And I know a lot of our teachers are going to be asking, well, what about the grading? Because they'll have parents to answer. And I think you gave us some great um, analogies that they could also use with their parents. I'm not saying you shouldn't grade. I'm just saying you shouldn't grade everything. And right. in, in my classroom, I aim for a four-to-one ratio. Okay. Uh, I want my students to write at least four times more than I can handle as a teacher. Okay. And I want my students to read at least four times more than I can assess as a teacher. 
Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I might have a kid do a time writing today. I might do another time writing in three weeks. I might do another time writing three weeks after that. So at the end of six weeks, I have three timed writings. The kid's done them all. I might have the kids staple them together, turn them in, put the one on top you want me to grade. I'll give you points for doing all of them, but I'm only grading one. You do three, I grade one. You do four, I grade one. If we're doing what would traditionally be called kind of packet work, uh, or we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird and you've done 10 assignments, I'll have you turn in all 10 assignments at one time, staple them together, put a post-it note on the one you, th- you would like me to grade. I'll pick one, you pick one. Hmm. You do 10, I grade two, <laughs> right? So I want to say it again. It, the grading, doesn't, grading sorts winners from losers. Who are the A's, who are the B's, and who are the C's? And we have to do that, and I do that in my own system. But... Sorting winners from losers is an entirely different thought process than everyone improves. If my goal in my classroom is that everyone improves, writing a D or a C or a B on your paper doesn't help you improve. Mm -hmm. It sorts who gets the A's and B's and C's. So if my goal is really you're going to get better, Mm -hmm. what I write on your paper has to be uh, very careful and has to be interaction with you that is going to drive you to get better. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and I think especially with grading essays, I would also add this idea for teachers that when I assess a grade, a student's essay, almost all of that assessment that I do now is mid-process. Mm-hmm. I don't do a lot of end-process assessment. It's too late. The game is over, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you look at a boxing match. What does a boxer do? He goes out. He boxes for three minutes. He comes back. And what does the trainer say? The trainer says, you know, you got, you got to get your hand up. You, you got to throw that left jab. You got to get out of the corner. The, the, the boxer receives the coaching while the boxing match is unfolding. Otherwise it would be too late. <laughs> it would be dumb at the end of a boxing match right. for the guy to say, you know what? You should have kept your left hand up. You might have done better. Mm-hmm. D. <laughs> Right? Doug right. Reeves calls this sucker punch grading. Mm. And so what I want to do is I'm still I'm not saying do less. I'm saying whatever you do with that student's paper should come at halftime. I'm mixing sports metaphors here. Mm-hmm. But it should come at halftime, not at the end of the game. You know, this is such a simple recipe. Volume, choice, modeling, conferring, plus less pressure to grade everything. Whew. And there is more. Kate and Kelly's chat continues in our next episode, so be sure to check back to hear Kelly Gallagher's advice for how to best utilize the back-to-school staff meeting and spark notes, yay or nay. I can't wait. Until then, you can check out Kelly's blog at www.kellygallagher.org or read his books. Thank you for listening to another episode of CNUSD EdChat. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to cnusd.k12.ca.us slash edchat. And be sure to follow them on Twitter and Facebook at CNUSD EdChat to let them know which topics you are interested in. This episode of CNUSD EdChat was written and produced by Kate Jackson, Ivy Yule Eldridge, Anne-Marie Cortez, and me, Kim Kemmer, and edited by Ken Pucci. Goodbye, listeners. Thank you so much. See you next time. Take care.
Hello, CNUSD EdChat listeners. Registration is now open for the CNUSD Literacy is Everywhere conference. This two-day conference features acclaimed keynote speakers, engaging breakout sessions, and great resources from our sponsors and vendors. And lunch is included. Please join us in Eastville, California at Eleanor Roosevelt High School on July 26 and 27. This year's keynotes include literacy experts Byron B. Garrett, Allison Marchetti, Rebecca O'Dell, Carol Jago, and award-winning literacy advocate and co-author of Every Child a Super Reader, Pam Allen. For more information on how to register, check out our show notes page. We hope to see you this summer.